You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This statue, the fearless girl, means so much to the people in New York City. And I'm saying all the people in New York City. Uh, I've been profoundly struck by what this statue means in particular to women and to girls in this city and this whole country. But I think there's an even broader symbolism of standing up to fear, standing up to power, being able to find in yourself the strength to do what's right. I think this beautiful statue stands for all of those ideas and those values. So I'm very happy to announce that our city Department of Transportation, our art commission at the DOT, took a vote and has agreed to extend the presence of the fearless girl here in our city. And she will be here all the way to next International Women's Day here in our city. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Do whatever that you like, do whatever, baby, cause I, oh, I don't care, yeah, yeah, it's alright, alright, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Hello, everybody. Uh, Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. My name is Danny Anderson, as usual. Uh, I'm glad you tuned in for this one. This is going to be an especially fun one for me, I know, personally. I am joined by uh, two wonderful uh, folks that have agreed to talk about uh, the Wall Street statue Fearless Girl with me today. Uh, First is from the Christian Feminist podcast, uh, Victoria Farmer. Victoria, how are you doing? Uh, I'm great, Danny. Thanks so much for having me on this episode. I'm really excited for our conversation. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here. When I got the itch to do this show, I thought, well, I've got to get somebody from that podcast <laughs> to be on here with me. I can't I can't solo this one. Uh, and so I, I'm very grateful that you agreed to join me. And Megan Von Bergen is back. Uh, you might remember her from a, an episode we did a few months ago about science fiction and religion. Megan, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks. I'm looking forward to joining both of you on the on the show tonight. Yeah, I very much appreciate you coming back. I, I enjoyed the conversation last time you were on the show, and and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it enough to join me again this time. So, uh, before we begin, I want to just throw out a couple of quick announcements. Don't forget to go to our Facebook page and like it. We do a lot of kind of extracurricular stuff there, uh, posting articles that listeners may or may not find funny and whatnot. So give that a like, and you can comment on episodes right there to sort of keep the conversation going. And also, it really helps, apparently, to go to the iTunes page and give us a a nice rating and a review there. It'll help other people find the show. 
Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist Podcast is much better at uh, plugging that than I am. So I wanted to make sure I took some moments here at the beginning to do that before I forget. And also, uh, we have a new feature on the website. If you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, uh, I found this way to have a free little voicemail box. And so if you have something to say, you can literally click, go to your browser and click on the voicemail box and say it. And uh, I'll get a little recording that I can play on a future episode. So that would be kind of a cool way to incorporate your voices into what we do here. And I just want to alert you, the details are foggy uh, in that I've just sort of come up with this idea. I read an article about uh, advertising on these kind of celebrity-driven podcasts and how awkward that is sometimes to listen to. And so I thought it would be kind of funny to do a, a contest here uh, for the Sectarian Review listener where I'll have people write an ad for a fake product of some sort, which I will then read on air. Uh, I'm looking for humorous sorts of things, and I'll read all of them. And the top two, I guess by popular vote, I'm not sure, will get uh, some sweet little Sectarian Review swag uh, if you remember the God, uh, Let God Die podcast interview I did, Josh Mozug uh, has a, uh, a woodworking uh, business, and he made me some really, really awesome coasters with the show's logo on it. And so I will give two of those away to the, uh, to the most popular of our fake ads. I'll work out the details here in the next uh, few weeks, but uh, look for that coming in the future and be thinking of some uh, interesting, uh, I don't know, Kirk Cameron facial hair remover cream or something. I don't know, some advertisement for something fun. So um, um, let's get right into the show today, though. Uh, this is uh, the, about a statue that someone has placed in front of the bull in Wall Street. That If you've ever seen images of that famous bronze statue of a bull in, Wall Street, in the Wall Street area of New York City, there is uh, recently been, it was commissioned by State Street Global Advisors, which is kind of the investment arm of Boston-based State Street Corporation. Uh, and the sculptor was Kristen Visbell, Visbal, I think. And uh, this has been, a, it's a little girl who's staring down the bull in a very heroic way, and it's called Fearless Girl. And there's some uh, chatter about this, whether it's a sign of, of feminism rising in corporate America, or if this is a kind of fake corporate feminism. And that's sort of what got the ball rolling for this conversation. I'll put a link to this article, the uh, online journal Hyperallergic, Hyperallergic, excuse me, uh, had an article called The Sculpture of Fearless Girl on Wall Street is Fake Corporate Feminism. And it's a really interesting take on this that I want to talk to uh, Victoria and Megan about uh, here as we uh, as we go on. Um, I guess I'll start with Victoria and then we'll switch over to Megan. Do you have any kind of initial sort of thoughts on this, the background of this, or do you, do you have anything to add to the to the setup? Um, something that I think is interesting is that the statue keeps being described as guerrilla art. Um, and I, I think that is a little silly because guerrilla art, um, well, especially first got associated with feminist politics, maybe not first, but most, um, most kind of blatantly and widely um, associated with feminist politics in the 80s because of a group called Guerrilla Girls, um, which I'm sure you both have heard of and mm -hmm. a lot of the listeners have heard of. And um, this is art that is sort of done 
A, under cover of night secretly, and B, um, you don't know who does it or for what reason. Mm. Um, so this fearless girl maybe fits point A, but certainly doesn't fit point B or point C um, for reasons we will unpack later. Uh, so I, I don't like that that definition is associated with it. Um, I am anti a lot of things about this statue, but I don't want to tip my hand too much. So uh, I'll just I'll just say that is my first uh, kind of definitional disagreement. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, yeah, we have time. We can ease into our uh, our rage here. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Megan, uh, do you have any uh, initial thoughts about the the situation itself? I think what struck me at first was. I heard about the statue before you proposed the idea of the show, and I my first reaction was one of mild approval. You know, a statue of a girl uh, going up in a public place, challenging the powers that be. Sounds fine to me. And then I went, a, went a, uh, around about my daily business. And then as the show was proposed and I started looking into it, um, just lots of issues surfaced, which again, uh, we'll get into, uh, but you know, it, it, it's easy to, to just kind of accept the surface at face value and not dig deeper. So, and that's exactly what I try not to do on the show, right? Uh, right, yeah. right. And so this is a perfect is topic for us. The pleasure of these conversations. So. <laughs> yeah, this is a perfect topic is to take something that apparently has a settled face value and and uh, deface that value. Uh, yeah, and I, I at one point uh, during the show, I guess I should have prepared you all for this bef- uh, beforehand. I had asked for listeners um, via our social media outlets at the Twitter feed and on my personal Facebook page uh, to let us know if they have any kind of comments they want us to cover. And at some point, uh, I'll shoot out some some comments from some listeners uh, that maybe we can just sort of take ad hoc and, and, and incorporate those voices too. So there were, there were some good um, challenging questions. I think people were picking up on my uh, suspicion of this and we're trying to push back on that a little bit in, in a useful way, which I appreciate. Um, that's one thing I love about the show is uh, I feel like there's not really a doctrinaire <laughs> kind of take on anything. Uh, we're, we have all sort of viewpoints covered. And so, um, and, and just to uh, wrap up this kind of introduction of the, uh, whatever the situation, the, the statue itself, there is legitimate debate about it. People were, um, who are not on, of my persuasion were complaining about the statue from a very kind of, I would say conservative position. Uh, people were saying that it, it, uh, it detracts from the meaning of the bull statue. And I believe I, I saw this attributed to the bulls, uh, sculptor, a guy named Arturo de Modica is the name I found. Uh, and so I, my understanding is that folks who are kind of invested in, the symbolism of the bull itself were sort of upset by what they perceived as a disrespectful um, attempt to kind of change the meaning of a public art piece. And my understanding is that the bull was uh, initially built after a, a recession period, I believe in the 80s, and there was sort of a celebration of re- economic recovery for Wall Street types, I suppose. And, uh, and so that's that's the conservative complaint. And then, of course, the popular liberal complaint or, or celebration of it is that this is um, a legitimate way to kind of diversify what is overwhelmingly 
male, <laughs> an industry that's overwhelmingly male, uh, the Wall Street financial industry. And so, um, and so I say supporters are kind of like basically kind of yay girl power sort of. Um, so I want to shoot this over to Victoria because she is the, uh, the founder and host of the Christian Feminist Podcast, which, by the way, if you're not listening to, you should be. It, it's excellent work. Um, and she was kind enough to have me on an episode where we talked about a similar sort of situation. I wanted to give her a chance to talk about what that program has already done with regard to this topic. Um, Victoria? Thanks. Uh, yeah, so we've done two episodes that sort of touch on the idea of corporate sponsored feminism. Um, and I will give episode numbers just in case any of you listeners are, are kind enough to, to download these episodes. We talked about the lean in phenomenon and Sheryl Sandberg in episode 13. Uh, we discussed the idea of lean in circles, um, these sort of women's groups in Uh, businesses and corporations where women encourage and um, and kind of back up one another uh, in meetings, talk about how they can further their careers, those kinds of things. Um, And I think ultimately, just to kind of spoil uh, the episode, I suppose, we uh, said that Lean In was was well-meaning, but not quite intersectional enough, though um, Sheryl Sandberg herself has has addressed that shortcoming in in other subsequent talks, um, particularly after the the uh, very sad and untimely death of her husband, um, she has gone back and said, you know, single parents and, and women of lower classes, um, it's, it's not as easy for them to do things like lean in. Um, so that was one of our critiques, not quite intersectional enough. And another of our critiques, um, which I think this episode will also touch on, is that lean in um, treat gives an individual solution to a systemic problem um sort of doesn't really address all the factors that go into um sexism and misogyny embedded in the fabric of businesses instead it says you know if you individual woman just sort of work harder uh you'll you'll move up um and and that's an an issue that we had Uh, We cover that issue deeper in episode 44, um, which is the one that Danny guested on. Uh, We just called that one Corporate Feminism. And we talked about uh, a Baffler article by Susan Faludi called Facebook Feminism, Like It or Not. Uh, I'm really glad that you suggested that we discuss that article. Uh, Danny, you sent it to me initially. Um, Susan Faludi is great. She's a great writer and a great feminist thinker. And what I loved the most about that article is that she argues that feminism um, has kind of lost its way right now. And one of the ways that it has done that is because it's lost sight of its anti-corporate history, its ties to unions. She talks a lot about the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire and some other events in feminist history. Uh, So those are the two episodes that uh, we sort of discussed similar corporate feminist issues and i hope everybody checks those out yeah they were um they were fun the one i was on was fun to take part of and the other one was fun to listen to uh you guys bring a great perspective i think that uh american liberalism sort of needs to hear or needs to pay attention to i think they hear it but they just tweet back at it in mean ways um so but i think that you guys uh you did a really good job with that uh megan do you have anything to add about this kind of general uh zeitgeist of corporate feminism 
Um, actually, this is a little bit of an in- introduction uh, for me, uh, partnering with you guys here, because while I've considered myself a feminist uh, for a while, it's mainly been in the context of um, singleness and my role in the church and my relationships uh, with other people. And so I'm enjoying discovering the the, the emphasis on its um, anti-corporate history, and I want to second the recommendation for the Faludi article, which I looked up in preparation for the show, and it is excellent. So, yeah, I'll put uh, I'll put the link up to that on the show notes as well. Um, I have a whole window full of uh, browser links that I'm going <laughs> to provide when I update the website for this, because uh, there is a lot of history behind this one statue. It isn't as if this public art event happened with no context. There is uh, an ongoing conversation about this kind of work. And so, um, uh, Megan, do you want to give us a quick uh, breakdown of what the article at hand, the hyperallergic article, which I suppose I should name the author, uh, Steinhauer. And unfortunately, I have a printed copy, and her first name is Besmudged, <laughs> so I can't. I'll look that up later. But Steinhauer is the last name. Do you want to give us a uh, a little rundown of the uh, of the article itself and its argument? Her first name is Jillian, thank, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. Um, so what Steinhauer is arguing is that you know she she starts off by. Um, describing some encounters that she has with the people that have gathered around uh, the the fearless girl on Wall Street, and they're enjoying it. They're taking pictures with it. Uh, they find it uh, profound. And Steinhauer, of course, pushes back against this rather forcefully. Um, she notes, like uh, we were talking about earlier, that um, the girl is seen often as guerrilla art, challenging the the bullish market, uh, trying to introduce an aspect of femininity to Wall Street. And Steinhauer says, you've got this wrong. It's, it's branded. Um, in a quotation from the article, it features a branded plaque at its base. The companies that, had it, that installed it had a permit. So essentially, she's saying that that fearless girl is inspiring and all that, but what it does is it amounts to an ad. And it's an advertisement that's meant to distract us from the fact that these corporations don't have a lot of women on their boards and the fact that um, they're not paying the women that they do have uh, very well at all and that they are unethical uh, corporations, you know, involved in the subprime mortgage estate, not exactly the kind of people that are going to be the kind of business that's going to be championing um, equal rights. Um, She brings Steinhauer, going back to the article here, Steinhauer uh, brings up the point that um, the, the fearless girl Uh, Let me just read the quotation here. Could there possibly be anything more patronizing than two massive male-dominated capitalist companies installing a branded statue of the most conceivably non-threatening version of womankind in supposed honor of a day devoted to women's equality that was founded by the Socialist Party? Um, And 
again, making the point that uh, the girl is essentially virtue signaling, and what would be real virtue is to hire women and um, pay them equally and to um, commission some genuine uh, feminist art, uh, perhaps. That's a great summary. And, and it makes me think of a couple of kind of broader complaints of the, like Sheryl Sandberg model of, mm-hmm. of, um, uh, of corporate sort of feminism in that it's about striving for success within a system that is is alienating people who are outside of it, right? And so it's fine for corporate women to um, push their way to the top in this kind of exclusionary system that is built upon basically class warfare uh, from the perspective of this article uh, uh, that is actually denying real other working women the kinds of opportunities that they need. Uh, and so it, it is sort of kind of a... a uh, it's it's a, a class critique, basically, is the, the kind of thing that she's making here. And I think that that's one of the major things it has in common with um, other critiques of this type of, of, of corporate feminism. I hope I don't overuse that term. Uh, Victoria, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, just because you mentioned the, the class critique and the sort of pitting um, individual women against other individual women, um, I think it should be noted that we're recording this uh, episode on April 4th. April 3rd, yesterday, was uh, National Equal Pay Day uh, in the in the United States. And, um, you know, this statue does not do anything to speak to that. Uh, and, you know, it, it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't help the fact that there are real disparities uh, still present. And also, um, not only is this girl a girl, which uh, we should talk about, I think, in more depth. Um, this is a girl and not a woman, and that is uh, that is notable. But also, um, visually, I correct me if I'm wrong, but this looks like a, a white little girl yep. to me. Mm-hmm. Um and in terms of equal pay day, I mean, white women have it bad enough. The the quoted figure is what seventy eight cents. Um, that's even worse if you are uh, a Latino woman, and even worse than that if you're an African American woman. Uh, also, I'm going to indict myself and say uh, it is notable that I, a white woman, know the cents on the dollar figure for white women and not for women of color. So I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not sort of letting myself off scot free here, even as I sort of criticize um, the statue as being lip service. It does seem like an amazing oversight by uh, sort of American like liberal feminism, uh, just sort of mainstream feminism, um, like this kind of celebrity branded driven feminism, um, because it's not like people haven't been complaining about white feminism um, for a long, long time now. And it it seems like an amazing sort of weird oversight to keep making. Uh, Am I wrong about that? No, it is kind of surprising that um, there wasn't a lot of... uh, Maybe there is, and I just missed it because I haven't been paying as much attention to the news in 2017 as I did in 2016. But it is kind of surprising that there wasn't a sweeping liberal backlash against the fact that the 
girl is a white girl and not a black or a Latino girl. Um, and Victoria, you brought it up that she's a girl. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Why is it? A, why is it significant to you that she's not a woman in a suit or or some other? Um, I feel like I'm just like going to be super snarky and angry on this episode. Maybe I just am. <laughs> Maybe I should lean into it, right? Um, I. So it's kind of cute that she's a girl, right? And she's got her arms akimbo on her hips and she's facing down the bull and that like, you know, little girls should be strong and they should be told that they are strong. Um, they shouldn't be told that they're pretty, just pretty, or that they're pretty first. Um, you know, I'll just, I feel like I should say all of that because I, there is some, some well-meaningness to this statue, but, um, you know, who is not, uh, employed by wall street, girl children and if they are there's a bigger problem because uh we're breaking labor laws and somebody should talk about that but no like women are the ones going up for these jobs and being sexually harassed and being judged and being you know all of the horrible stuff that happens to women not just in the corporate world but in lots of other jobs so i i just feel like making it a girl because there's a lot less cultural objection to girl strength than there is adult female strength in a lot of ways um that it's actually exhibited by lived people uh i i feel like it's an another sort of easy way out yeah that's very interesting because then it doesn't actually um tread on the territory of the power holders, right? I mean, there's, this does, this is not a situation that wall street actually has to address, uh, because, uh, right. that's not who they're even allowed to hire. Right. And so, yeah, this is not something it, it's like a, a phony, uh, standing up to power then because it, there's actually no real indictment of the system involved in it at some level. Well, it's it's not even power stand. It's not even standing up to power. It's the powers that put the girl there in the first place. And so it's, it's a performance. It's a simulacrum. There's nothing behind mm. it. Wow. Okay. Now you're in my, you're in my wheelhouse now. Um, yes. It's something it, it, that looks like the thing, but is not the thing. Right. And yes. yet people, yes, exactly. and yet people are reacting so strongly to this. I love this article. I, I mean, Victoria, I don't think that you can out snark the article itself. So I don't think you should worry about that. Uh, the quotations that she gives for kind of the, the law, the laudatory, uh, response that this has gotten in American kind of liberalism, um, and, uh, it, are just kind of funny. Uh, she puts them in quotation. And my favorite one is that I think this was from like the Boston globe or something the, they called it the turning point of gender equality in corporate America. This is, this is the kind of, uh, the, the result that is going to come out of this statue being here for a year is that it, this is the turning point, uh, for, uh, gender equality in corporate America. And it's actually kind of laughable when to me, I mean, as someone who doesn't live in New York or respect wall street all that much, uh, but it's actually laughable that people could be so naive. <laughs> Or it would be if it weren't so tragic. Ah, that's frustrating. It is. It is very frustrating, right? Um, so, yeah. And, and I guess I should say, I think just the other day, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio 
uh, came out, who's his famous lefty mayor. I mean, he ran on an extremely progressive platform, right? And so um, I think it's a sign of the kind of reliance on symbolism that the American left uses right now or, or relies on. And so I want to get to that in a little bit, but he is just, he just had a big press conference, which was the, uh, I'm using that as the show open today. So that's what you heard at the beginning of the episode, uh, of announcing that this is going to stay here. The city powers that be have, uh, deemed it, uh, appropriately, uh, Happy, happy, happy love, love time. And so they're going to uh, keep it up until next International Women's Day. Uh, so it'll be here at least until February if you want to get a chance to see it and get a selfie with it yourself. You have uh, almost a year left to do that. So um, so let's zoom out then because this is a, um, a, a symptom of a larger problem in kind of corporate patronage uh, of social issues. When corporations try is there sort of a kind of co-opting of real social issues that uh, goes on when corporations get involved and are they then using the dissent in order to support the corrupt system what are you guys' thoughts on corporate patronage of of uh, of art in general public art in general but uh social issues in specific i guess we'll start with megan this time okay um, I had a lot of thoughts. <laughs> so stop me or jump in uh, when or and don't let me ramble on. My first thought is a bit of a realistic one in that, you know, right off the top of my head, we've got this ideal that art needs to be funded by the by the government, but certainly not by a business or a private uh, corporation. And it occurs to me that the old musicians, Haydn, were often, or Dante, uh, for the writers, were often uh, patronized. Uh, mm-hmm. There weren't corporations back there then so much, but there were large uh, private houses, and they received patronage, and they did a fantastic job. And and so I think that needs, I mean, the artists did a fantastic job. They produced fantastic work. And so I think there needs to be an element of realism in acknowledging that the money to pay for the art uh, has to come from somewhere. Um, that said, I, yeah, that said, I'm concerned that ads draw us into the orbit of the corporations rather than um, the orbit of other people that we should be loving and paying attention to and the orbit of our creator. I've been reading a lot of Jamie Smith lately Mm. and I'm actually teaching him in the composition course that I teach. And what has really struck me is his emphasis on the fact that liturgies and rituals in our senses train our desires in insofar as ads and statues like this of the uh, girl on wall street are sensory that we can engage with them um, as as physical physical people. We can go up and take a selfie with a girl, or we can uh, put our arms around her, or something like that. They shape our desires and they cause us to forget about other things that might be equally important, such as the um, you know, such as the legitimate concerns that women are not being paid as much as men, especially uh, minority women. 
I also connected this with M.T. Anderson's novel Feed, uh, which is a a feed is a set. It's the feed is the internet embedded in our brains, and the corporations have a heyday advertising to it. And what strikes me is the way that the corporations will again sponsor things that are good for us, such as school, and then use that sponsorship as a as a cover to advance uh, their own well-being as corporations. There's a passage uh, maybe midway through through the novel where Titus, the main character, says that now that school, trademark, uh, is run by the corporations, it's pretty brag because it teaches us how the world can be used, like how to use our feeds. And then he says, um, when no one was going to pay for the public schools anymore and they were all filled with guns and drugs and English teachers who were really pimps and stuff, <laughs> some of the big media congloms got together and gave all this money and bought the schools so that all of them could have computers and pizza for lunch and stuff, which they gave for free. And now we do stuff in classes about how to work technology and how to find bargains and what's the best way to get a job and how to decorate our bedroom. And so my concern is that when you have the corporations paying for art or paying for things like school, it changes so that it's no longer art or school or um, something that's really important, and suddenly it becomes very utilitarian, um, and it becomes in the service of the corporations, because when the kids are learning how to find bargains and how to get a job and how to decorate their bedroom, the money that they use to get the get the bargains and decorate their bedroom is going back into the corporations. Mm. And so tying this all back to um, corporate sponsored art and feminism, the art and um, feminist sculptures are, are essentially used to generate money. Uh, for the corporation's bounty put a woman on its paper towels recently and what does that do but buy more money um for bounty i think i'm wandering off the off the subject here uh barely i don't think so again. <laughs> <laughs> no i think that you're right on what i think about this as well i feel like when you have a corporate sponsorship of anything they're not sponsoring it for anything outside of the good of the company, right? They're not doing it out of some human sense of goodwill because they're not humans. They are profit machines and any sort of patronage is really an investment uh, in future profits. And, and so uh, any sort of, uh, I would, maybe I'm being painting with too broad a brush here. I, I'm probably, I might do that. I probably say that every third episode. Uh, but uh, I think that when you do get this, uh, uh, investment of money you, that comes with that is that control right and and i think your uh, reference to uh jamie smith is, is perfect because it's aiming your desires back at the corporation itself um one of the um uh interesting things in this article that they point out is that the company that sponsored this uh the statue uh let me see where did i have this uh, the company that sponsored the statue, um, the leadership team has only 27% women, and uh, it's an asset it's asset manager whose leadership team has only 18% of, of women uh, employees, right? And so we get to ignore that. Uh, they get to sort of buy our complicity in that by celebrating this kind of hollow gesture of public art that allows us this kind of good feeling. Um, it's and, not, it's not public art. It's a PR move. 
Um, that's a good point too. Actually, I watched an Al Jazeera uh, news package about this, and it was hilarious the way that the the reporter framed it. They talked about how it was funded by some of the local businesses here. Uh, that was literally the term he used. <laughs> some of the local businesses here. Wow. On Wall Street. <laughs> Like there are no local businesses on Wall Street, and uh, and so yeah, but it was sort of painted in the, as this sort of very organic uh, kind of uh, just display of magnanimity. <laughs> Victoria, that's that's just hilarious to me, especially like um, because as we've said, this statue in no way exists in a vacuum. Um, I mean, there's there's even a, a term for it. I think we've covered this on the CFP, um, so sorry if I'm being redundant. But the idea of femvertising, mm. um, that that it's actually a, a pretty common advertising technique these days to um, lay this veneer of, of feminist kind of you-go-girl politics um, over your ads. Uh, it's something that a lot of companies do. Um, one of the big Super Bowl commercials this year um, for Audi – uh, did this? It's uh, a little girl at a soapbox derby, and oh, her yeah. and her dad is saying like, "What am I supposed to tell my daughter? Am I supposed to tell her that she can't?" Blah blah blah. Um, which you know is very nice and heartwarming. And fathers, please you know tell your daughters that they um, should should work hard and and try to achieve lots of things, even when people tell them that they can't. Um, but also, my uh, my first thought was like, if Audi really wanted to make this ad, they should have included a link to their uh, internal diversity um, in it. You know, tell me what percentage of your corporate officers are women. Um, if if you really sort of want to to use a ridiculous but perhaps appropriate cliche, put your money where your mouth is. Um, do that. Uh, and and by the way. Um, I, I work for a company that, uh, that does this once a year that makes our, um, gender and ethnicity, um, not just internal hiring, but, uh, board members and, uh, because I work for a news company, news sources, um, the percentages by gender and race, uh, public once a year. So I, you know, this is a, a project I have worked with and, and very much believe in, and I think a a lot of companies should be doing it. Yeah. And I, I have it's to personally. Oh. It was an out, sorry. I just wanted to say that it's ironic that it was an Audi ad because Audi is the one that, re that released the, uh, rapey, um, advertisement for the Super Bowl a couple of years back. Mm. Uh, the boy that goes, goes and kisses the, um, prom queen without consent. Mm. So they're buying so absolution. Oh, pretty much, or possibly. Uh, this might also be a good time to talk about the uh, guy who got caught on vi video humping the fearless girl statue. Yeah, I just saw that too, doing my research. Research, I tell you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, he was a local sort of Wall Street fella, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so I actually, there that uh, I want to get to that in a second. Um, one of my... Uh, uh, a commenter on Facebook actually asked us to cover that, um, that possibility at some point. And I want to like hold on to that. But, um, one of something that you said there, Victoria, about, 
um, femvertising, I think was the term you used. Um, my colleague, uh, Jessica Jost Costanzo, who uh, is in the English department with me at Mount Aloysius College, uh, she actually posed, uh, asked us to talk about this. And I'd like, I wondered if I can get you guys' thoughts on this. Um, she said, sounds like a great podcast is on the way. I would like to hear the panel's thoughts on the General Electric Millie Dressel House ad. Did you guys watch this? Um, it, it's uh, sort of what if we treated great women scientists with like we treat athletes or whatnot, people running down the street taking selfies with this old woman and that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, there was that ad. And also I'm curious how ads in general are taking on a more political tone. I'm thinking, of course, about the Super Bowl ads from this January, as we've just talked about. In other words, are political movements and messages being forwarded or used by these by these visual narratives? Um, so is there, I, I don't know if this is what she means by this, but is there the possibility that even though this is crass, um, is my sort of default setting to interpret these kinds of activities, is there still uh, a legitimate political activity involved with them? What do you guys think on that? Yes, but only if it's a starting place and not an ending place. Okay. Um, can you expand on that just a little bit? I feel like yes. I'm in class again. <laughs> uh, it's cool. I don't get to be in class anymore. So let's go. Um, so I, um, that, that, thing that I said, let it be a, a start and not an end, is from um, a book that I read most of. I have not finished it because um, I was reading it online, um, which I think, again, I've recommended on the CFP, a book by Andy Zeisler, who used to be um, the executive editor of... Um, I am not sure what the language rules are on this podcast. Uh, a a feminist uh, magazine whose name is a bad word for women, but they are reclaiming it. Uh, yes, I know the word. Okay. Um, it rhymes with um, witch. Yes, it does. <laughs> uh, so Andy Zeisler used to be the editor there, and she wrote a book called We Were Feminists Once um, that's about this sort of recent history of um, feminist flavored advertising. And she argues that, uh, because advertising is something that is, um, kind of saturated our current public sphere, uh, so much so that people like us, um, teach ad analysis in our English classes. I know I did. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's, it's so, all around us that uh, it can be a way to enter into discourse and to kind of introduce political ideology and start to plant seeds. But if that's all we do, then the politics gets sort of diluted by the corporate interest. Um, so mm. that's that's sort of my opinion. I think that Zeisler um, makes that argument in a, a really accessible way. She unpacks um, some some really interesting campaigns that a lot of people are familiar with, um, talks about a lot of the Dove Beauty initiatives, um, talks about the You by Kotex, um, sort of anti-tampon tampon ads. Uh, so if, if you're sort of interested in this femvertising conversation, um, pick up We Were Feminists once. Okay, that's so, good. So, Victoria, just to clarify for me, you would, because the Dove soap commercials came to mind when, for me, when we first started talking about this and I started reading about it. Um, 
they do count as fembertizing then. I think they do, um, though they, they're a sort of, in my mind, a slightly different arm of fembertizing because they do, um, most of them don't actually sell a product. They sort of sell the ethos of the company. Um, but because, I mean, specifically in, in terms of the Dove ads um, and the Dove Real Beauty campaign, um, this is a beauty company that I mean, literally makes their money on women's physical insecurities. So it's interesting that they um, are sort of doing this real beauty thing. You know, women with freckles are beautiful. Women um, who are curvier are beautiful. Women with curly hair are beautiful. By the way, who says they're not? <laughs> that's a weird line to draw. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's you that's been telling us this whole time that they haven't been. Right, right exactly. So, um I, I think that, you know, if, if we can begin the conversation um, by talking about the issues these ads bring out, good, but we should um, not take them as at face value, as we've been saying this whole time. I, I guess my question is, um, can a company legitimately be activist? I mean, is it possible for a corporation to, maybe I'm thinking of feminism in a very specific way, one that is um, built on institutional critique and not necessarily um, equal access. Okay, and and that's a that's a bigger question probably for your podcast, uh, Victoria. But um, but is it possible for a company that is uh, that is dependent upon the system being as it is to legitimately uh, foment change in it through its advertising. I mean, does that even see, that seems just anachronistic to me. I, I mean, I think if I can, uh, address that, um, you're asking a, a very third wave question. Yeah. Um, because, uh, sh should I define that? Please. Okay. Um, so real, real quick, feminist history divided into three waves. Um, I'm going to be incredibly general and short here. Apologies. First wave um, begins in 1838 with the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton gives a keynote address, says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Uh, and a lot of people get very upset about that. And the first wave ends roughly with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Then we have the second wave, which is mostly what people talk about when they talk about feminism, the sort of women's lib idea yeah. of the 60s and 70s. Um, and the big rallying cry of the second wave is the idea that the personal is political, the idea that where women live their lives um, in the workplace for your liberal feminists like Betty Friedan, um, who are sort of working within the existing legal system, or uh, in the bedroom for radical feminists like Shulamith Firestone, um, who start talking about like, paid housework and uh, test tube babies and ways to kind of um, use your sexuality um, as a way to look at political advancement. Um, the radical feminists are also where we get kind of uh, lesbian separatist commune stereotypes from, uh, though there were some 
lesbian separatist communes, though not as many as uh, your Pat Robertsons would like you to think. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so both sort of facets of the second wave say the personal is political, and things start to get trickier and murkier um, in the third wave, which is kind of 80s and 90s, and maybe into today, depending on who you ask. Uh, some people say that we're in the fourth wave now, but since you can't really make a historical period that you still live in, um, the jury is out on that. But what the third wave does with this idea of the personal is political is that they kind of extend um, the personal even further than the second wave does, particularly as culture and popular culture are concerned. Um, the third wave is really concerned with the idea of things like art and television and music um, being not just available arenas for political expression, but necessary arenas for political expression. Mm. Um, you get things like the Riot Girl bands in the 90s, uh, like Bikini Kill and Huggy Bear and La Tigre. Um, I want to do a show about the- I want to do a show about La Tigre with you someday. I love them. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, let's. Uh, I I love I love Riot Girl. We did a Riot Girl CFP episode. Um, I do. I have very... do. <laughs> I'm sorry. Keep going. Riot girl. Right. So the idea that the personal is now kind of everything is what we get from the third wave. So, so I, I think that the, the waters are sufficiently muddied now as far as feminist political history. Like I'm not sure that uh, I think there are certain pockets of feminists that would say it's a natural extension of what the third wave did to say sure these ads can be political and yes they should um you are obligated to kind of inject your personal politics into all things i'm not sure i agree with that but i do think it's probably a natural outgrowth of some of the places we've already been yeah Uh, megan do you have anything to follow up with that on um, nothing as insightful as Victoria's excellent history uh, there. Um, thank you, Victoria. I, I learned a lot. Um, I just thank wanted you to for say... calling me insightful. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I need to take a breath. That was so fast. <laughs> um, it was a lot of history in a in a short period of time. Um, I was not familiar with the ad that your your colleague referenced, Danny, and so I looked it up here on my phone. I'm Millie Dresselhouse doll. Happy birthday, sweetie. Whoa. Millie. Millie Dresselhouse Day. We are so glad to have you here. What if we treated great female scientists like they were stars? What if Millie Dresselhaus, the first woman to win the National Medal of Science and Engineering, were as famous as any celebrity? Millie Dresselhaus was seen having lunch today. What if we lived in a world like that? We know a place that's already working on it. So I scrolled through an, an essay that 
slate put out about it. And I see I see both positives and negatives about this ad. Uh, the ad seems to be linked to a point that Victoria's made a couple of times. You know, is the ad connected with real action? And the the GE ad is apparently connected with a plan to hire uh, 5,000 women in STEM positions and to employ uh, 20,000 by 2020. Um, and so, you know, that's good. Hiring more women is always good. Um, on the other hand, the Slate article, this is uh, by Ruth Graham, by the way, ends by noting that uh, promoting women in science and tech isn't just good HR. These days it's good uh, PR, too. And Graham does not mean that critically. It's just an observation she's making. But it brings home the the main reason why I have a hard time trusting feminist advertising, which is that it is good uh, PR, and I always get the sense that the that the companies are just doing it to make a buck, uh, not because they're genuinely interested in the well-being and in the accomplishments of women. Yeah, I'm reminded. I was just looking at the show notes for this um, this episode, and and Megan, you had left a note, a, a quotation from that Baffler article that we had previously mentioned. Why mount mm -hmm. a collective protest against the exploitations of the workplace when it was so much more gratifying, not to mention easier, to advance yourself and only yourself by shopping for liberating products that expressed your individuality and signaled your seemingly elevated class status. Um, I'm reminded of that in this conversation, um, how even protest becomes co-opted then into consumer activity. Uh, and so that's how that is, that's, that's collective, uh, uh, mobilizing at that point that's organizing. Uh, and it is also enriching the company. Right. Um, and this is, mm -hmm. uh, I think you see it with the, uh, in the wake of Trump's election, um, the cynical part of me wanted just to start creating um, T-shirts to sell angry liberals um, with slogans. Oh, Y'all, if I see one more nevertheless she persisted T-shirt with stupid flowers on it, I'm going to lose my mind for real. Market safety pins to people, right? And so like, I, I feel like um, people are so wanting to do something and corporations are consumer activity at least steps in and offers them this sort of easy way to turn that into self-expression um, for 1995 or whatever. Right. And I feel like I could probably retire next year if I were just actually to act on this and maybe it's irresponsible of me not to do this. But, um, uh, but yeah, I do feel like that's the cynical, the, the suspicious part of me. Um, it Feels it's, like it's definitely out there. The day that I allotted to go over the show notes and do some research, that day I stumbled across a list of like 17 products to express your inner feminist <laughs> on BuzzFeed. And it, just the coincidence that it happened on that day speaks to how prevalent uh, this kind of thing is out there. And I know you did a show about Matthew Crawford yeah. a couple of episodes about ago, but this is actually reminding me a little bit about him because it's a very reductionist view of the self that we become who we are by making certain uh, consumer choices yeah. is something that he argues is a, is a problem in our uh, postmodern consumerist uh, society. 
And, um, you know, he, he argues that we need to get away from that uh, by returning to handcraft and submitting to the, the structure of the real world. Um, the material. You know, perhaps, yeah, re- realism. yeah, the material. Yeah. yeah. Um, perhaps, perhaps there's an analog here uh, for, for how to really celebrate uh, feminism, women, in, in that instead of asking them to buy stuff, um, we acknowledge their uh, material being yeah real experiences yeah i i'm just i mean the the ad that, so the research that you just did about the the millie dressel house ad the general electric ad that is a little heartening to me um if it was actually accompanying a um a legitimate um concerted effort by that company to do something practical with that right that that is that is heartening um i don't see that here i think that this is um this is spectacle more than anything else this is just an occasion for people to associate themselves with a feministy looking thing right um in order to um claim that as an identity um and therefore virtue signal i mean i think this is basically uh art as virtue signaling um, I, I have to ask also, Megan, um, I don't mean to put you on the spot again, <laughs> uh, but looking uh, just briefly, uh, you'd left some notes on our document. Uh, you'd mentioned Frida Kahlo uh, and um, uh, listening to other people's stories. I'm kind of interested in, in what you were thinking about with that. Um, okay. So with Frida Kahlo, I had a roommate in college who was very much into uh, Frida Kahlo as a specifically as a feminist icon and the i the appeal with frida kahlo there is she resisted she she resisted male norms um you know she famously had a unibrow which she refused to pluck um she did not give in to the the cultural standards of beauty which i think this girl does in in that we pointed out that she's a girl, that she's a white girl, uh, that uh, she's wearing a dress, and that she's produced by a um, corporation that's uh, predominantly male. And so I think in terms of thinking about what uh, art that actually celebrates women it looks like, uh, Frida Kahlo may be a, a good exemplar of that mm. um i'm going to butcher uh the the second name but uh chimamanda Ngozi has an uh, ac- adiche chimamanda Ngozi adiche thank you um i'm not going to try to replicate that uh but that was uh, <laughs> uh i appreciate your pronunciation i've enjoyed listening to her TED talk about the importance of hearing other people's stories and uh, trying to understand uh, where they're coming from and it and appreciate uh, their perspective. And I'm, I'm being a little reductive in my summary there. It's been a little while since I've listened to her talk. Uh, but it did strike me that the girl statue asks us to buy into another story, to cast back to Jamie Smith, who we mentioned earlier, 
in in the episode. It's an ad, and as such, um, pulls us into the story that the corporation is telling about itself, that it supports women, uh, rather than encouraging us to listen to the stories of other women and the the challenges or the victories that they are actually experiencing in their lives. I think it's great that you bring up um, her TED Talk, uh, which we should mention by name. It's called The Danger of a Single Story. And uh, it is, it's really wonderful. Um, I've taught it. I've used it a lot. Um, I've sent it to coworkers and uh, other people. And uh, I think it's, it's particularly interesting to bring up uh, Aditya in this context because she um, up until I guess about a month ago, she was sort of one of those feminist figures that everyone could all buy into wholesale and was sort of accepted um, as a progressive feminist figurehead until she defied feminist orthodoxy, current feminist orthodoxy, and and questioned um, whether trans women had the same kind of life experiences as cis women did uh and and then the internet turned on her <laughs> uh so I, I think that's particularly interesting because sort of people were like why don't you fit into a neat uh storyline you know she kind of gets more nuanced in her political thought rightly or wrongly um but certainly more complex uh and and people were not having it that, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. I'll have to go do the research after the show. Yeah, that is interesting. And it, I mean, it so harkens back. To, I mean, Nathan Gilmore and I, um, Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist podcast, the flagship of this network, um, he appeared on the show a few months ago and we talked about um, uh, political correctness. And, and this uh, seems to me a case of that kind of run amok and, and cannibalizing uh, a movement from within. Uh, and that that's, a, I think, a very interesting feature of, of contemporary liberalism, um, which I want to get to in a second. But before I do that, um, Victoria, you also left a note that I wanted you to, to follow up on um, in terms of the problems with corporate pa- patronage. And you said something about Mad Men uh, with regards to this uh, this endeavor. And I was wondering what you meant by that. Uh, OK, I. I. I'm not sure that my note is as smart as you think it is, but all right. Um, so one of one of the advertising firms that's responsible for this uh, statue is McCann, um, who used to be McCann Erickson, and uh, I found that humorous because um, if anybody listening was a was or is a Mad Men viewer, um, you will remember that on that show, which this may or may not be accurate, not everything that. Uh, that Matt Weiner wrote uh, in that show is is accurate to advertising history um, or accurate in general. But anyway, so on the show, McCann Erickson is sort of the villain advertising firm. Um, Peggy calls them out as being sexist. Um, so if that show is to be believed, which again, maybe it's not, but if it is, um, McCann sucked at gender in 1964. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that it's interesting um, that, that that's one of the, the firms uh, involved here. 
<laughs> but may- maybe I'm I'm completely off base, and their depiction in the show is inaccurate. Well, so I think it's McCann be- <laughs> employees or enthusiasts don't yell at me. I think it's beautifully ironic. Either way, I think it's uh, that that's actually kind of awesome. Um, and uh, no, that that's great. I am so happy with this conversation so far. Can can we uh, follow up then on that transition you offered us, um, Victoria, about? Um, that controversy with the um, apostate feminist, uh, and uh, and uh, and talk about how this statue intersects with some possible problems uh, or issues in contemporary liberalism. Um, you know, recently I did a show um, with C. Derek Varn about celebrity. The celebrity. It's called. We called it celebrity liberalism, um, and basically about the the emphasis and the reliance that liberalism has on famous spokespeople. And I wonder if this is a, a similar, if fearless girl is standing in for a celebrity here for us. And, um, uh, I don't know who to start with, uh, Megan or uh, Victoria one. Do you have any, um, thoughts on how this intersects with ongoing issues that liberalism is facing, frankly, and that has come to, um, boil to the top in the age of Trump. Like you, I was struck by the virtue, the fact that the, that the girl is essentially uh, virtue signaling, uh, that there tends to be this, um, knee jerk reaction. And, you know, while I am as frustrated by, um, certain movements in our, our culture and politics as anybody, the knee-jerk reactions tend to uh, be very superficial and not always helpful. Um, I'm also off, was struck uh, by the connection between um, that there's a certain kind of celebrity feminism that is uh, not helpful. I'm thinking of um, that, that, the feminism that's essentially uh, displayed by Emma Watson and uh, J-Law. There's a a BuzzFeed article. Um, I feel like I need to um, do penance for referencing a BuzzFeed article (laughs) in the show. As Um, long as it's a listicle. This article's really good, actually. (laughs) It is. Is it a listicle? That's my my favorite. My favorite innovation of the 21st century is the listicle, and that we we uh, we owe BuzzFeed for that. But go ahead, Emma Watson. We do indeed. Um, no, there's actually an in, an interesting article that connects uh, J Law with the cool girl, as described in in the Gone Girl uh, novel, uh, the kind of girl that. Um, is simultaneously uh, hyper-feminine and hyper-masculine. So she's small and sexy and has her hair swept back in a ponytail, uh, but eats as much as the guys and watches football with them and Mm. burps and is always up for, um, you know, romping around. Um, And that's certain uh, celebrities kind of embody uh, this idea of of feminism that to be you you need to be um cool with your body the way it is and uh, enjoy food and just kind of be real and a little bit um dirty and it's it's still just a performance and i think that is is what frustrates me about uh, celebrity feminism is it's it's this performance of the real again as opposed to welcoming 
welcoming and accepting a diverse range of um, women's experiences. Mm. Is it worse than, okay, so what you're saying is bad, agree, I'm, I'm annoyed by it, but is it worse than so the sort of choice feminism on the other end, this like, I'm a woman, so anything I do is a feminist choice because I'm a woman and I get to choose it? That is a really good question. No, I, I don't think it's worse. No, I would probably say that there are different kinds of bad with different consequences or, or harms. That that's fair. I, just, I I feel like they're probably like different sides of the same coin. Uh, uh likely uh, they are um, different corruptions of of the same original good. Mm. The the same sort of we must be all things to all people as women now kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I guess I, I'm thinking thinking on my feet a little bit here, but if. We take Lewis's idea that all sin is a corruption of an original virtue, and uh, feminism begins as the virtue of celebrating and uh, respecting womanhood, then I think it gets twisted in one direction uh, by uh, people, by, you know, the performance that J-Law puts on of, you know, um, being a, a quote-unquote cool girl and emphasizing uh, the dirtier aspects um, or the earthier aspects, I think, would be a better way of phrasing that. And it gets twisted in the opposite direction with the I can choose to do anything I want to do um, that you're talking about. They're both twistings of the original respect. Is this making any sense? <laughs> yes, I, I love that. I love that you're kind of uh, applying those two bad feminisms to what is essentially an Aristotelian view of virtue. I think that's excellent. Good. I'm glad it's making sense. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's related, I think, to a general kind of cultural tendency I mean, we get this down to even like I'm the I have the right to any opinion I want, whether it's valid or not. Who are you to say that my opinion is less than yours, right? And so, um, mm -hmm. this con like every second of the day, we get to define ourselves um, wholly independently from the our surroundings or or the culture around us. And and yeah, and I think it, it's it's not isolated to just feminism. I think this is sort of a it may that's maybe how it looks within that kind of that form of feminism but it, it, it's an expression i think that is we see all over the place um as well um but i i mean i'm really i i just get so frustrated with the the situation you described victoria about this kind of figurehead within feminism saying a thing wrong and breaking with dogma and uh and then therefore being sort of ostracized and shamed on twitter of course uh because that's where you get to signal your virtue right uh in, in very kind of neat and easy 140 character bites uh and, and i feel like that's that's a this is beyond the realm of celebrityism, but it's also it's just sort of a, a feature. There's a fundamentalism within liberalism, I think, right? Yes, now. it's it's mm -hmm. religion for lack of religion. Yeah, and and, and it, so much of what I see politically, and, and it's so uh, 
prevalent right now because of the hysteria um, of the Trump election. Uh, but so much of what I see politically from the the broader left, not the not the necessarily the far left. I'm not talking about the, the sort of Marxists and, and whatnot here. I'm talking about sort of mainstream liberal America. Your slate reader, right? For example, um, uh, and, and I just see so much of a um, settledness and so much of so many assumptions. And there's such a watchdog quality, <laughs> just looking out for people that we can call out, right? This call out culture, I guess, is what the term is. And and, and I think that. Um, a uh, fearless girl is an occasion to associate yourself with one of these truisms, with one of these kind of accepted dogmas. And this is why people are lining up to take selfies with them, right? With her. And, and so I, I think that there's something, this is partly possible, not just because of corporate America, but because of American liberalism as well. I think American liberalism is in, is in cahoots almost with uh, corporate America uh, right now in um, kind of undermining feminism. Mm. Um, I, I don't want to dominate this conversation. Do you have other things to add about this, Victoria? Uh, mm. I guess one thing I'll say real fast is uh, just to piggyback on um, Megan's wonderful kind of Aristotelian comparison. Um, my maybe my very favorite current feminist thinker, uh, Susan Bordeaux, um, says something really similar in the most recent anniversary edition of um, her kind of landmark text, The Unbearable Weight. Um, she says that sort of the difference between um, second wave feminism and third wave feminism is that we go from thinking we should have it all to thinking we should be all things to all people. Mm. And, and that that's a, a dangerous uh, change because uh, the onus goes from being on society to being on us. And if, if we are sort of not perfect feminists, then it's our fault, mm -hmm. except the rules keep changing. Uh, so I, I, I mean, maybe that sort of circles back nicely to the, the sort of Sandbergian um, individualism critique we were making before. Yeah. Yeah. Can I throw a monkey wrench that just came to me? Um, and this is probably way too big a, a conversation. It, I'm sure it's its own episode. But um, is there a sense, is there a way that mainstream feminism, popular feminism, let's just call it that. I don't have the term uh, that I need to describe this, but uh, the kind of feminism that leads to um, Fearless Girl. Uh, is there a sense that it um, uses feminism too often um, as uh, as a as an argument? And I guess the specific situation I'm thinking of is this kind of in the the Clintonite circle, people who are still angry at the at the Bernie Sanders people um, for uh, for not supporting Hillary as much as they thought they should, and they're levying regularly. They levy accusations of sexism, which is the why that they choose the term Bernie bro. This very reductive, stupid term, I think. Um, Bernie bro is to sort of label someone a feminist or a sexist without actually having to call them that. And, and so uh, uh, is there a sense that they're overreaching there, I guess is the question. Wow, that is a very big question, and I'm not sure I can answer it right now. Yeah, and, and I don't mean to sound dismissive of 
the fact that there are sexists, right? And there was a sexist backlash um, against Hillary Clinton. I, I'm aware of that. I think they're over-applying that accusation. Um, I think that, that some of the people that I see, at least, uh, who are still angry at, at Sanders' campaign are overreaching with that accusation. Um, this is my sense. I was hoping you could sort of give me some perspective that maybe I needed on that. Um, Megan, do you have any? Uh, it's, it's hard to talk about it with, I guess I'm reluctant to talk about it, um, you know, without specific examples, because I, I don't want to paint yeah. with too broad brush. As, although, I, as I'm doing, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you don't want to make the same mistake. I'm um, doing, right? <laughs> yeah, I do think that sometimes the charge of sexism is overreaching. Um, and ironically, I think tends to be applied. Uh, we make the charge of, uh, no, let me start that sentence again. Um, I think sometimes sex accusations of sexism are leveled at actions that aren't really sexist, like supporting Bernie Sanders, whereas we are ignoring things that are more legitimately sexist, um, you know, such as uh, sexual harassment in businesses or the rapey ad from Audi, um, things like that instead. Uh, we're making mountains out of molehills and ignoring the real mountains. Yeah. Um, and I think the cost of that is to create unnecessarily skir unnecessary skirmishes within liberalism itself, right? And 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 I think that this that I I am associating it, and maybe unfairly, and certainly there are people who are are not being unfair in this way. But much of what I see, and, and Twitter is not a good measure, I know, but this is where I'm seeing it. Um, but much of what I see is people um, applying this sort of call out culture. Uh, and finding apostates wherever under every rock um, and, and almost like communists in the past. Right. And so, um, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, Tumblr you know, is even worse than Twitter. I think <laughs> is in that, in that regard, um, <laughs> is Tumblr still a thing? Oh, Tumblr feminism is like the, the bane of my existence. I did not, I was on, I mean, I, it's shocking to me. Tumblr is still a thing actually. Um, I'm so out of it, but um uh, can we, uh, I want to talk a little bit, I have two more questions. Um, I want to talk about public art in general as kind of a philosophy and, and it's what use is it in this, in this way. Um, but I also want to handle a couple of, uh, listener questions and I think this is a good moment to get into one. Victoria, earlier you had mentioned, um, the wall street, um, man, whatever his name, I don't even know his name, but who was caught on tape humping fearless girl right which is disturbing on just human decency but then when you consider the fact that it's a little girl it becomes quasi illegal right and so it's uh doubly disturbing on that level but um uh my uh old grad school buddy uh ray horton he actually um had an interesting uh comment about this he largely i think liked this article but he says i do worry that this argument can be easily appropriated by the reactionary bros okay and he's using that term the men's rights lunatic lunatics for example or the wall street bro who is photographed doing unspeakable things to the statue this is what he was talking about who want any ammunition they can find against whatever smells a bit like feminist symbolism and empowerment 
But much more importantly, I think this critique taps into exactly what is problematic in today's liberal politics. Uh, and he talks about Nancy Frazier and stuff. I want to uh, talk about his his fear there. Um, is there a sense that even this conversation can be too dismissive? I mean, do you think that there is a place for this? Um, Megan, do we want to start with you this time? I just let me do I think there's a place for the hyperallergic article or do I think well, there's a place for fearless girl? Um, no, no. So are we so is there a danger in using the hyperallergic article to kind of further reactionary um, sort of men's rights shenanigans? I mean, is there a, an inherent like danger in. By critiquing something like this, are we necessarily are we unwittingly yet necessarily providing ammunition to this sort of reactionary uh, right? I suppose. You mean, are we playing into the stereotype of angry feminists? Or are we just giving them um, permission to complain about every legitimate form of feminism? Okay, uh, because we complain about this one thing, then we can complain about other things too. Oh yeah, I just want us to address the question. <laughs> okay, I, I'm just, I'm just, sorry. The English teacher in me likes uh, to have things uh, very precise. Um, I think there's always a danger in complaining about uh, things too much. Uh, we we start complaining about things too much, and we fall into the trap that you know, we accuse contemporary liberalism of making where you, where you can, um, and you know you you've got to hold yourself to a certain purity. Um, but the question, as I understand it, is if we complain, then they can complain too. And I guess my gut reaction to that is they're probably going to complain about feminism anyway. Mm. Yeah. And so it makes sense to, to call out, um, false images of, of feminism and I guess not worry about whether or not, whether or not our, our objections, um, uh, give them an excuse for doing so. Uh, Marilyn Chandler McIntyre has a really excellent book called uh, "Caring for Caring for Words and a Culture of Lies," um, where she argues that you know we live in a society of of hyperbole and imprecision and confusion, and it behooves us as uh, people of faith to speak the truth and to speak up for the truth. And I think that insofar as images can be understood as a kind of word or a uh, kind of expression, then speaking up about the way that something like Fearless Girl is not, in fact, an accurate representation of feminism is speaking up for the truth and good to do, regardless of whatever anybody else says about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, that's my sense as well. Um, and that just could be my default critic. Um, I, and I think the re the way, uh, the field that I most often run into this is I'm obviously on this show quite critical of evangelical Christian culture. Mm. Um, and I do try to keep in mind that, um, 
there's a way to go too far with that critique. I think, um, even, I think internal critiques are important and yet I think it's important to keep in mind, um, the fact that it could be giving, um, ammunition of sorts to people who are, I don't know, you're stupid, like idiot Bill Mars of the world or something like that. Right. And so, um, mm-hmm. no, I, I think that's the place I most often run into this, this dilemma, but I, I think it's a similar kind of dynamic here. Victoria, do you have anything about that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, so I, I was looking on Facebook to try to find this question so that I actually respond to the question and this, the stupid Facebook algorithm is not letting me look at posts (laughs) I have already seen right now. Ah. So grr, uh, but, um, I guess my question in response to the question would be, um, if not, like if, if in responding to it, I am giving, ammunition to this finance bro um to use language i have heard leveled at him um then like what's the solution to that like if if i'm you know if the article shouldn't exist because it gives people like that ammunition then like what are we supposed to do I, i i would like to know what the alternative is because if the alternative is not talk about it then like no, that doesn't work for me. Um, I, I don't care. I would rather um, exhibit myself a more nuanced version of feminism than the one they think exists and then have them respond to that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think we're all sort of on the same page. Uh, as I would expect, pretty much everybody who takes part either as in front of the mics or listening to um, this network's podcast. I think, I think it's sort of a, a default setting for, uh, for all of us, I think, or most of us, I would hope at least. Um, and I do have, I have two other uh, comments, one from the Facebook feed and one from our, we have a Twitter page for the show, by the way. Uh, and somebody actually found us on there. And um, I never mentioned that uh, Joshua Outmanshofer um, and uh, a friend of my wife's, actually, named Rachel Halford, uh, she commented. And is they, it Altman Chauffeur, by the way, with uh, an A? Uh, yes, it is. Yes. Oh, awesome. Josh. Josh used to be in Michael's band in college. Oh. <laughs> well, Hi, Josh. <laughs> I hope he's listening. Um, well, well, he and Rachel um, Halford, my, my wife's friend uh, from high school, they uh, had a similar kind of uh, question. Um, and he phrases it, and he's writing on Twitter, so it's very succinct. Is there room to acknowledge baby steps, however faltering, with grace? I don't see it in this article. Um, and then she said a similar, uh, she had a similar sentiment. I'm not, uh, she said, I wonder if there's a middle road in considering this work. I'm not over the bandwagon on it, but I don't think it's everything wrong with feminism or liberal politics. Maybe it's a little easy but a lot of people need do need easy, and if it starts a chain of thought, isn't that powerful in and of itself? And so should we be cutting them some slack here, or is it entirely um, a crass means of getting into our pocketbooks, our liberal pocketbooks? Um, <laughs> what do you guys think about this? As I said before, if it's actually a starting place, like if someone has never thought of it before and they're going to continue and, and sort of read deeper things then yes. But if they're going to just buy their nevertheless, she persisted t-shirt and not interrogate other things, then nah. Okay. Megan. It's also, it's also a big wall street corporation with 
billions of dollars at their disposal to actually forward the rights of women. I'm more willing to um, celebrate baby steps for individual people that are working to recognize and support and uh, respect women um, in their everyday lives. Absolutely, yes. This is certainly different if we're thinking about individual people and their individual knowledge gains. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, I've got my students who who write a paper, um, you know, pushing back against uh, sexist language in sports. You know, you play like a girl. I will celebrate the baby steps of those students. Um, I'm not inclined to celebrate the baby steps of a massive corporation that could take much larger ones. Um, very good. Um, and that's, that's an, I hope that was, uh, um, satisfying to the folks who were very kind enough uh, to give us some questions to consider. I want to make that a more regular thing. And that's why one of the reasons I have the, um, uh, whatever the, uh, the voice message feature on the, uh, on the website. So, uh, I would like to be more actively involved with listener questions and voices. And, and this was a pretty successful uh, way of doing that. Um, we're really running out of time here. I want to thank you guys for, uh, your patient so far. Can I throw a theoretical kind of a Socrates cafe question at you um, to consider <laughs> and to answer? This is just something that occurred to me. Um, the bull at Wall Street, which we haven't really talked about at all, is utter masculinity, right? That, that's the, I mean, this is, um, have you ever seen, have you guys ever seen that in person? Yes. It's not me. Um, I, the back end of it has two gigantic testicles, right? I mean, this thing is like utter masculinity and it's ferocious looking, right? Um, and so uh, there's, it's not even subtle in its masculinity. And so we haven't talked about the bull uh, enough, um, but can, this is, a, a, I guess, a philosophical question that I'm interested in your perspective. Can fearless girl um Ever, even if it, so, forget the context with which it was constructed. Um, if this was a uh, Banksy or some some sort of guerrilla art, if it actually were that, um, can fearless girl be feminist if its only meaning is derived from its juxtaposition against a hypermasculine bull? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, that was too darn easy. You can't stop with that. Keep going. Uh, yes, because my favorite. Feminist theorist says so. <laughs> um, Appeal so to authority. In, uh, <laughs> but it's feminist authority, so I'm totally fine. Um, no. Uh, so in her 1975 essay, Sorties, um, which is French for exits, uh, Helene Sixtou, my very favorite feminist theorist, which if you're into feminist theory, um, please read Sixtou. She's amazing. If you haven't read her before, start with The Laugh of the Medusa. Um, but in Sorties, she um, starts the essay with a series of binary oppositions. Um, good, bad, sun, moon, dark, light, some other ones. And the last one is uh, man, woman. And she says... Um, Essentially, that all knowledge begins in binary opposition, and that man-woman is at the center of all of them, um, as we sort of, in a post-enlightenment world, um, process knowledge, this is how we do it, and man-woman is always behind it, and man is usually privileged. Um, so I think if we believe Sigzu, then um, 
if the fearless girl has any power, which I'm not sure she has a whole lot, but if she has any of it, um, it's precisely because of her binary relation to the other statue. Interesting. Is this a sort of a, a dialectic sort of that she said, like a, a Hegelian sort of thing that she's she's doing? Uh, yes, and and a lot of people who criticize her and who criticize um, other French feminists of the same period, but her kind of most of all, um, say that her feminism is lacking because um, it's rooted in a kind of essential feminine that other um, other feminists in the same period say does not and should not exist. Um, I, I kind of like that she uh, she roots for that essential feminine and says, um, you know, it's it's fine if it exists, but what we need to work on is uh, the fact that patriarchy has forced it into the negative position. Mm. Um, so, like, I, I'm, I don't think it's it's perfect this dialectic that she's set up but i i do think that there's at least historical and theoretical feminist precedent to say that yes it's okay that this binary between the bull and the fearless girl statue exists that's fascinating thank you for that um megan what are your thoughts actually uh building on uh what victoria said i had two thoughts on this particular question uh the first was that you know, I'm not sure, can Fearless Girl be feminist if its only meaning is derived from its juxtaposition against uh, the hyper-masculine bull implies that it might be possible to have a woman statue with meaning that exists altogether apart from representation or the, or the idea of a man. And, I, and I'm not sure that we can do that, right? Uh, the two genders exist in, in relation to each other, uh, the dialectic or that man and women, to, you know, to go more uh, faith-based here, man and women are, are created in the, in the image of God and both capture something, something essential, uh, something different, but equally essential. Um, and so to some degree, I, you know, I think you need that juxtaposition and turning it around, you know, I would say that if it were a, um, you know, a female cow and a, uh, statue of a little boy, uh, they would also need that uh, juxtaposition. What strikes me, though, is the word against, uh, because that is the relationship is fundamentally antagonist. Mm. And I think ultimately that, uh, um, you know, as as feminists, as humanists, we should be working for a more cooperative relationships. The image that I have in mind is the one from the end of C.S. Lewis's Paralandra in the unfallen world where you have Mars and Venus uh, who rule the world uh, together uh, side by side, um, each of them bringing the other one to their full full being. Um, is there a way to have meaning where she's with the masculine, not against it? Uh, that's boy, another great perspective. Um, I, I, I posed that question just out of my own kind of curiosity and I wanted to do a little bit of, uh, 
I suppose, close reading of the art form of the artwork. Uh, but you guys really both got me thinking uh, in really interesting ways. That was um I'll be stewing on both of those answers for a long time. Uh, I really appreciate that. Um, and I really appreciate you guys agreeing to come on. It's like late here at my time. It's almost 10 o'clock here at night uh, in the East. And uh, I appreciate you guys taking the time to join me. Um, are there any last thoughts that you guys have? Uh, no, I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, no, thank you. I've also really enjoyed enjoyed it this was a good conversation thank you yeah i appreciate it guys and and both of you are you know welcome back at any point uh we have this little for those of you who are listening a little insider baseball there's this little private discussion discussion forum that we have for the show and uh and and victoria and megan are both on it and that thing goes crazy sometimes and i just sit back and, <laughs> and just giggle uh because i know all these awesome smart people and uh and, and it's been a lot of fun to uh, to do that and um this has been a very uh entertaining show for me uh in, in intellectual engaging you guys know stuff that I don't know and and now I feel like I'm all the more um, informed because of this conversation I really appreciate it um, please do check out uh, Victoria's show the Christian feminist podcast they're um, an ongoing project that's got um, dozens and dozens of episodes at this point um, you'll learn tons from uh, subscribing to that show as you will from all the shows in the Christian uh, Humanist Radio Network, the City of Man we haven't mentioned here um, today, but uh, they do some awesome political commentary from this sort of binary, this conservative versus progressive uh, Christian perspectives, and uh, the Christian Humanist podcast, as well as we have a science podcast called The Book of Nature, and uh, and Christian Humanist Profiles, which is interviews. It's a pretty robust network. If you go to christianhumanist.org, you'll find out all the information about those shows. Uh, and please do uh, drop us a line at the Facebook page, go to iTunes, leave us a review, and we do have the website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com, where you can find all kinds of neat stuff as well. Um, until the next time, I am Danny Anderson, and thank you very much for listening.